Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So we asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favour and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. So on the 3rd of October this year, uh, the Essendon Football Club appointed uh, a new CEO, Andrew Thorburn, to lead the club. Uh, Andrew has been a CEO of other large corporations, including the NAB Bank, for a number of years. He was initially involved with the club in the selection process of choosing the new CEO, but soon into the process was asked to step away from that role and to join the candidates to be selected for the job. Through this process, he was expressed as a highly credentialed leader, uh, a man of great integrity and exceptional vision. The board were extremely impressed with Andrew's understanding of the AFL system, but also the business of sport on a global scale. Most importantly, though, Andrew demonstrated throughout his business career that he can execute the priorities that the organisation had. This still wasn't good enough. 
It didn't take long for the media to get awareness of Andrew as the chairman of another organisation, a church called City on a Hill in Melbourne. And this church in 2013 did a message about not supporting same-sex marriage and at other times were clear about not believing abortion as the best option. Uh, this message happened before Andrew even attended a church, th- this church, let alone was the chairman of it. Uh, and it took 24 hours and Andrew had resigned from his position, uh, being asked to choose between CEO or chairman at the church, uh, and he chose the church. It was death by association. Andrew himself never came out saying he had these, these views or agreed with them. Simply by being associated with these views, he was removed. He was cancelled. Uh, and so this, this story, I mean, it's recent kind of news, but it, it hit home for me. It uh, kind of shocked me a little bit. Uh, and because, you know, it's easy to hear these stories and assume, oh, they must be one of those over-religious, over-political, extremist churches. Uh, but I, I know about City on a Hill, and uh, I have a good friend who is also on the board of that church uh, and is, is friends with the pastor, Guy Mason. I, I've listened to their sermons, uh, and I, I think, in my opinion, this, this is one of the churches that is actually treading this line really well of having a great conversation about controversial topics uh, and not coming ha- hard down on you must believe in this or else, but actually having a conversation with their people and actually trying to talk about it in an open way. And so for me, this, this hit home thinking that uh, this kind of scenario is playing out in our society. And it shows that things in our society is changing, how uh, what we can perceive and have views of as Christians uh, is going to determine some of the opportunities that we have. And so it, it may mean that if you have certain uh, traditional uh, conservative views uh, around you know, this marriage uh, thing and uh, different views, that uh, there's certain jobs or certain status that we may not get as Christians uh, in our society. Uh, and so... Yeah, I think this is kind of just a start of something that could play out more and more as we go along, as um, things become even more progressive um, in our society. And so that's that's one side of the story, where we have a society uh, that is this going this way, that is kind of being very liberalised and very liberal in how they they're approaching things. But then on the other side of the story we have a grim picture of a church that has not handled this whole picture very well, has not uh, been very open about uh, views at certain times, and in, at most of the time we have a church who has uh, oppressed and, and overpowered uh, minority groups, groups like the, the LGBT community, um, as, as well as, you know, there's been massive racial things, things that have, have littered the church history um, in not a very good way. And so we have one side of the story where our society is heading in this more liberal view and a hyper-liberalized society. But we're at the other side of this, the story, we have this, this uh, hyper-conservative church at times that has oppressed people. And so... What, what we're doing here tonight is we're actually going to have a look at what it means to be in this society and what it means to be a part of the church at this time. And um, we are looking at what it means to be in a uh, secular 
society, uh, as it is, there, there it is, um, that, uh, yeah, we are in this time as a secular society, that we are both hyper-secular, which means we find meaning away from the sacred order, but in the physical and present reality. Hyper-secular, but also hyper-sexual, where we find our identity in the individual sexual understanding or imagination of self. And this is where our society is. And so we've got two goals out of tonight. It's Firstly, we want to get a better understanding of uh, where our society is at so that we can personally work through this. But we also, secondly, want to have a better understanding of so that we may love the world more. That we can actually, um, you know, not just poke fun at society and say that they're all doing it bad and how evil it all is, but we actually want to be more loving. We actually want to understand how this world is working more and more so that we can reach this world and, and with dignity and worth acknowledge the people around us with love and respect and not just think that we know better because we, you know, know God and we've got it all sorted uh, in, no, in no way, that's the picture that we want to present. We want to actually come with this an awareness of how we can love people better. And so we're, we're splitting tonight into two sections. Uh, firstly, where are we at and how do we respond? And so, um, yeah, this first section, where we are at, we're kind of, I'm going to be breaking down, doing a lot of an, an analysis of our society, doing the best that I can to bring some information. Uh, but then that second section is, you know, what many people will probably asking, like, all right, what is this actually? How should we now respond? How should we be behaving as Christians in this time? And so in that second section, we're going to be addressing more of those questions. Each section will hopefully have about five to ten minutes of discussion time where we can talk about what we're talking uh, with the people next to us, because this is not just about me presenting information, uh, but this is about learning together. This is what we do as this community. We want to learn together, uh, and uh, in no way do I think that this tonight is going to fix all the problems. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, guys. It's, it's not going to fix all the problems. We're not going to be solved. We're not going to have it all sorted after tonight. This is just a start where we're actually having opening this conversation about what it means to, to be in the society that we're in and, and face these challenges, but not do it out of fear or um, out of just an anxiety or, or worry, but do it out of love and compassion and, how, and out of faith in, in trusting Jesus. And so that's our pursuit for tonight. Let's do it. Let me pray. Thank you, God, that you are here, that you're with us, uh, and that you are king of the world. We just trust you, Jesus, as king and lord of our lives, that the, the amazing message of Jesus, the gospel is that you are king, that no other uh, structure or system in this world is lorded over us, but you are king. And that means we, we are called to actually die to ourselves, to give up who we are and trust you and follow you. Lord, you showed your way of power through weakness, through giving your life. And so, Lord, I pray tonight, may you fill us by your spirit so that we may know you more and that we may give our lives for others. Help us, Lord, where we've got it wrong, where we've uh, been through a pride or through fear. God, I haven't been able to address some of these issues. God, help us to have an open heart to hear you speaking tonight. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the answer, that you are our hope. 
In Jesus' name, amen. What I love about the um, book of Daniel and uh, that kind of passage of, of Scripture that we've read at the beginning, uh, I find it so important to, to read through the book of Daniel in such a time as this. Um, because the book of Daniel, it, it firstly um, is, a, is a book about uh, these exiles. The, the people of Israel had lived in their promised land, and then now they've been captured. They've been besieged, uh, and they've been taken from their homeland, taken into exile into Babylon. And, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the picture of the exile is such an important picture in uh, the Old Testament and in Israel times. Uh, but it's also important for us to realize that we ourselves are in, in a time where we're not the majority culture, that Christianity is not the majority culture, but we're, uh, in a sense, exiles in a secular uh, society or secular society where we're actually formed and, and the, the people in our world are, are thinking a totally different way that we do as Christians. And it's just important to recognize that that's the reality of what is happening. Uh, and so the, the question is, how did Daniel and his friends respond to exile? That they, they thrived. They still stayed committed. They still staying, stayed uh, true to who they were. Uh, and uh, that you see throughout the book um, a sense of thriving and trusting in God. That, that was still uh, embedded in, in the culture, but they were still true to who God had called them to be. Uh, I also think it's important to read the book of Daniel because there's the picture of what Daniel and his vision is, is about the Son of Man. And this is the, the statement that Jesus himself referred to the most about himself. When he would call himself something, he would often call himself the Son of Man. And that phrase is actually a phrase that is from the book of Daniel. It's a phrase that we, is, yeah, a vision that's kind of a bit complex and weird um, uh, found in the book of Daniel. But it's uh, a beautiful vision of actually the Son of Man coming to rule over the nations, to actually bring liberty and freedom to the nations, the Son of Man who will rule. And so I think the book, book, book of Daniel is important for both those aspects to realize that, yes, we're exiles, but to realize that Jesus is king of the nations, that he rules, he reigns, and uh, we need to continue to have him at the forefront of our minds as we lean into what we are doing as a society and lean into uh, seeing yeah, Jesus as the hope and answer. And so we're going to take a couple of uh, a look at a couple of characteristics of our society. Um, I've tried to boil down, uh, try, you know, not not wanting to overload you with too much information. Uh, I could go on for a lot longer than what we're doing. So I've tried to boil down. I've boiled it down to just two characteristics of our society. Um, much of what I'm talking about is coming from these two books. Uh, one, Carl Truman. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is an amazing book at kind of unpacking and looking at uh, what it means to both be a, a, a personal identity and your culture, and it's kind of unpacks, looks at, um, yeah, a lot of how we got here. Uh, this is kind of really intense, meaty book. If you're into something that's a bit more intense and meaty, that this is a great one. He also has a condensed version of this book um, that you can get uh, which, what is, what is it called again? It's, um, yeah, it's called something. I, I can, I can let you know what it is, but this is the one I have, so, but it's great. Um, and then the other book that I have just recently read, uh, thanks to the Twilight, uh, is this beautiful book, uh, by Henry Nguyen 
uh, called The Wounded Healer. And this is just a nice small one. So this one I read in a day. It's, it's very easy to... The two kind of polarized books here. Um, so if you're interested, this is kind of some of the information that I'm kind of sharing out of... Um, and so the two characteristics I want to point out uh, tonight is firstly uh, that our culture is anti-historical, uh, that the present is all that is important. In our culture and in, in our understanding of, of kind of getting to where we are in our secular uh, society, that we're anti-historical, number one. And secondly is that we're anti-cultural, that we actually have a, destru uh, a destruction of the truth for recognition, and where recognition has become more important than what is true. And as we understand these two characteristics, I also want to point out a key ideology that's behind and underneath what is going on these two um, uh, characteristics, and what Ch Charles Taylor, who is an important modern-day philosopher, um, he refers to as the expressive individ individualism. Expressive individualism. And he says this, he says that the understanding of life is that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by a society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. This expressive individualism means that we find meaning by not surrendering or, or through some institution or set of beliefs, but we find meaning through our authentic self. And this is where our society has been moving, where we have this expressive individualism that is at the heart of who we are as a society. Um, and it kind of is the bedrock behind some of these, these two characteristics that we're going to go through that describe a lot of how our society thinks and acts is through this expressive individualism, that true meaning is found through my authentic self. So let's get into this. Number one, anti-historical. The present is all that's important. Now, our, our view of history is often only what negatively has impacted us and has made our society. We only have often, when we think back at history, we often only think of the negative events, the things that have gone wrong, the wars, how people have fought. And we only have thought of how history has shaped us in a negative way. And this is so true in our society. Henry Nguyen, he says that historical dislocation is a break in the sense of connection which men have long left, uh, long felt with the vital nourishing symbol of their cultural traditions, symbols revolving around family, idea systems, religion, and the life cycle in general. Why should people marry and have children, study and build a career? Why should they in invent new techniques, build new institutions, and develop new ideas when they doubt if there will be a tomorrow that can be guaranteed that can guarantee the value of human effort. Crucial for those who live in the modern age is the lack of a sense of continuity, which is so vital for a creative life. We find ourselves part of a non-history in which only the sharp moment of the here and now is valuable. 
It's amazing. Those are incredible words. We have rejected the past as a worthy of respect and as a source of significant wisdom for the present. Why look to the past when through science, technology, modern medicine, consumerism, all these things, we have moved so beyond our past? Uh, Take even our marketing campaigns. If you look at Apple, every year they bring out a new phone and every year I feel like they have the same slogan. This is the best iPhone yet. (laughs) They have the same slogan, saying the same thing. What they're trying to say is essentially don't look at the other things. Don't look at the past. Just live what, what is present now. What we've been able to produce now is what is important. And so the present is what is king, what is important for us in our society today. And some of you might say, yeah, that, that's kind of right. And what's, what's wrong with that? Why can't we just live in the now, people? Let's live in the now. <laughs> Again, Henry Nguyen says, when we wonder why the language of traditional Christianity has lost its liberating power for those who live in the modern age, we have to realize that most Christian preaching is still based on the presupposition that we see ourselves as meaningfully integrated with a history in which God came to us in the past, is living under us in the present, and will come to liberate us in the future. But when our historical consciousness is broken, the whole Christian message seems like a lecture about the great pioneers to someone on an acid trip. If we fail to see the success and failures of our history, learn from them and work through them, we are at risk of repeating the same mistakes. Where family was built on learning the ways of the family, where work ethic was was strong and commitment was strong. But now we have an expressive individualism that is anti-historical, which means we make our own paths. And that's a scary proposition where we can make our own ways, and that's kind of a bit scary. Now, in the, in the words of the great modern philosopher Taylor Swift, as she shared at the local university graduation she was receiving a PhD from, she said, I know it can be really overwhelming working out what you're going to do. I do have some good news for you. It's totally up to you. I have some terrible news also. It's totally up to you. So yes, our our culture has a swing towards historical dislocation where we want to be free to express who we are in our own way, not connected to this history. But we as Christians need to acknowledge that history is key for us. We are only where we are and who we are in light of history. We can't let our lives be dictated by just our present, but continually see the mystery of our past. And this is, uh, this is what our, our, our world is actually longing for. Our world is longing for mystery. It's longing for something mysterious. It's, it's apparent in our movies, in our books, that they're the world of mystery, it, it sells. It's, it's what people are so intrigued with, invited into this life of mystery. That's something that is beyond just our present reality. And it's through the mystery of our past that we actually ask ourselves challenging questions of our present. It's where we actually challenge the core of our identity when we we look back into the mystery of our past and our history. 
And so as we live in a world that is anti-historical, though longing for mystery, this, the, we have an opportunity to actually maybe not talk about necessarily history to others, where, where people have, uh, can share and talk about um, the negatives of what history has brought. Let, let us invite people into the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Jesus Christ and what he leads us into and how that mystery of, of his history actually brings death to our lives and the lives of many that there is this anti-historical bent that has shaped us into wanting to just live only in the present, not see the other forms, the history of our world. Secondly, there's the anti-cultural characteristic, that we have a destruction of truth for recognition. This is in an effort of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snubbery, we have grown to think that the ways of our past not only do not fit us, they do not work with us, but they require deconstruction, which is kind of the buzzword at the moment, the buzzword of deconstruction. Now, Timothy Keller, uh, he says this, he says that the academic concept of deconstruction assumes that all moral claims are efforts to exert power over us in order to prevent our liberation to think for ourselves and create our own selves and lives. Deconstruction means then to unmask, relativize, and disempower such claims so that they no longer hold us in their sway. No longer do we trust uh, the culture of our society that has formed us through institutions, through traditions or patterns of behaviour, we promote removing ourselves from such a culture and becoming, in a sense, anti-cultural. And what becomes important in this worldview, in this way of thinking in our society, is not necessarily truth, but it's recognition. It's important to, to me in, in this society, to have my identity recognised in the way that I feel like I want to express it. It's not good enough that I can express what I feel. It must be recognised and affirmed by others. Now, our moral obligation as a community is to then, to the recognition of the individual expression. That's, how, that's what our, our society sees as our moral obligation, that we are, as a community, meant to recognise every individual's expression, whether that's based upon their sexual identity uh, or their, their gender uh, or kind of whatever, uh, I, I want, whatever you want to express individually, our moral obligation as a community is to the recognition of individual, individual expression. And for our society, any deviation from this moral obligation then must be deconstructed. And so let's take this understanding into something of hot contention of uh, the idea of marriage, the notion of marriage, uh, and in particular the inclusion of, of gay marriage. Uh, in Christian tradition and over centuries of history, marriage has a threefold purpose, lifelong companionship, mutual sexual satisfaction, and procreation. Uh, by such a definition, it is necessary that the partnership required is between people of opposite sex, a man and a woman. 
but with our worldview where we have a moral obligation as a community to the recognition of individual expression, this definition of marriage does not work. It doesn't allow for the individual's expression. So for our society then, marriage required deconstruction. It required a change. It required us changing how we define what marriage is. And whether you agree with this is a way forward or not, we must recognize that this is where our society is at and how it processes such decisions. It's processing this in this way and thinking about this, that we need to be aware of how our society, how our culture is, is working and thinking so that we can also just love and be a part of this society. Uh, rather than being based upon a culture that stood for centuries, our society is more based upon what is now referred to as, as emotivism, where all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling. So now, uh, if you in disagree with an individual's expression, you don't just disagree, but you dis personally disapprove of people. This is the scary part of, this is kind of how, where this is all wrapped together, and this is kind of the picture of what Andrew Thorburn, the SNN CEO, had faced. That it wasn't just that uh, he may be affiliated with these different views, but actually th those views meant the disapproval of, of the community of Essendon. And so where our community has and our society has led to is the individual expression, the recognition of that is what is king, what is most important. It's now recognising that their feelings, their emotion is what is true. And so this sometimes makes it much more difficult to have a conversation to actually disagree with others without maybe the fear of being labelled irrelevant or worse, a bigot. Uh, we, we must work out a way for us as Christians to actually talk about this and actually have a healthy way of conversing with people you may not agree with and actually realising that the way that we talk with people, you can actually uh, still talk with a way of recognising people, recognising their dignity and worth, but, but still standing on what you believe. There is a way of actually having this conversation with people where you see the person but still actually stand for what you believe in. And we're, we're going to talk about this more in our next session as we kind of talk about how we respond. Uh, and one of, the one of the sections of that is, is how we can actually converse and, and have more of these conversations where we're um, talking with people we disagree with. Uh, but I think in, in some case, the deconstruction is a good thing. Some, some, yeah, sometimes this is important. In much of our world, it would benefit from a form of deconstruction. There has been much abuse of power, much oppression, much judgment. The way we as a society and the church have dealt with women, race, the poor, the LGBTQ community, much of the marginalised of our society has been done with an abuse of power. And so something needed to deconstruct. We needed to go through this but many deconstructed ex-Christians testify that Christianity did not let them be true to themselves. 
But as they go on to explain their new life without religious faith, it is obvious that while they have questioned their Christian beliefs, they have not at all questioned their new beliefs. And so one set of naive, unexamined beliefs has been jettisoned for another set just as unconsidered. And so what's important in this time for us personally, as we go through to, to read, I think it's, it's, it's healthy and important to, to actually think about our faith and to rethink what we understand, to rethink how we are thinking and doing things. It's important for us as Christians to, to confront this and to rethink what we believe to learn about our doubts and to confront them, to not actually just uh, be okay with how we've acted as a society, as Christians up to now, but actually rethink what we believe. But this rethinking doesn't only need to just happen with our faith, but it also needs to happen with the, the narratives our culture has been telling us, narratives about this expressive individualism that, that is meant to lead to some form of happiness and, and life that is bliss. But we also need to actually question and think about that way of living as well as thinking about our faith. And so it's, it's good to actually read and, and dig into things that you may not agree with. You may actually question how you think. Uh, recently, I, I read a book called Changing Our Minds um, by David Gushy, uh, who uh, he is a reputable, well-known Christian ethicist, uh, and he offers a picture of changing our minds about the LGBT community. Uh, and I started reading this book, uh, skimming over it really, and I kind of just fobbed it off. I was like, oh, this is pretty shallow. It's not really biblical sound. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of way of thinking actually spoke more about my fear of challenging uh, this idea in me rather than the book itself. <clears throat> uh, but then I gave it a second look and I actually started reading it properly. And uh, I became much more sympathetic to the arguments that... Uh, the author was was presenting and after reading I think I actually have changed my minds and my views about how I, I understand um, how we should treat LGBT uh, people but I may have not gone to the full extent that David the author had got to uh, fully agreeing with some of his conclusions uh, but I think it was it's important for us to actually challenge what we believe and thoughtfully consider and reconsider how we think and believe and not just read and take in the information we already agree with, just everything that agrees with what I'm saying, but actually con consider and contemplate things and not just on a surface level like I did maybe the first time I opened the book and just like just glazed over it going, oh yeah, no, I just don't agree with this and I won't bother about that, but actually giving it a good read and good think about to actually understand what we believe. As our culture is going through this deconstruction, we, we as, as the church are also facing what we think about and how we think. And so um, it's important that we actually do this in a healthy way. We have a, a form of actually rethinking what we think in a healthy important way. And I, I think a, a part of that is community, actually having conversations, actually talking about it with others, actually not just being isolated in a little bubble of, of uh, just doing it by yourself, but actually having a conversation with each other and, and dealing with this together. In Yeah. So again, these two characteristics that we've presented here are the, the anti-historical, that the present is all that's important. And secondly, that the anti-cultural, that 
the deconstruction of truth for recognition. So what does is, what is this all mean? What are we even doing? Uh, where, uh, where before our society had a commitment for the benefits of God, the church, or had the, a commitment to family or a commitment to the community, now our commitment as, as a society is for self. It's not hard to see how a self has been idolized as the true commitment for us as a society, that our commitment as a society is all about self. And we as the church need to fight the commitment for self. Need to not give in to that expressive individualism for ourselves that continues to say, I want you to be happy out of your own feelings and what you want out of life, but actually continue to commit to following Christ, that that is the key mandate of us as Christians, is to see our commitment is not about us. Our commitment is for Christ and for others, that we, as we are deeply rooted in, in the secret place of God, of, of going near to God, of drawing near to Him, finding our identity in Him, as we actually commit to that place, that is where our true identity is formed, into the secret place with God. When we have time and time again, have a, a place where we are identified by who Christ has made us to be not just by our own expressive individualism that wants to creep in and, and seep into how we act, that we bring this out as well. We, we can often, if not careful, act in a way that is just wanting to please our own feelings, please our own ideas, please what we want. But as we actually live a life of being with Christ, live a life of being found in His presence, of soaking into who he's called us to be. He continues to form us. Our identity is rooted in who Christ is. And so as Christians, we find ourselves in the opposite of our culture. We firstly are historically rich, that we find answers, insights, and awareness from our historical past identifying that our world longs for the mystery, longs for something greater than the present, and the mystery of the Christian history is the answer that people are longing for. And secondly, we, we realize that we are, are kingdom culturally strong, that we are formed through a kingdom culture, knowing that the, the values and ethics of following Christ and staying strong in them. Our world is not based upon uh, recognition only, but deserves rethinking. We need to rethink how we understand things. Uh, and do that through a lens of the king and kingdom understanding. So here, there, there is kind of section one. Right now, we're going to stop for a, a minute, um, and we're going to just ask a couple of questions to the people next to you. Two quick questions. Uh, firstly, the question is, what scares you about society today? And secondly is, how is the Christian message the answer? So we're just going to stop, pause for a sec, and then second section we're going to talk about how we're meant to respond to this moment. All right, we're moving on. How do we respond? How do we respond to this? 
Yeah? Yeah, mate? Uh, this, yeah, situation that we're in and how our society is, um, yeah, how do we respond? One day, uh, a young fugitive trying to hide himself from the enemy entered a small village. The people uh, were kind to him and offered him a place to stay. But when the soldiers who sought the fugitive asked where he was hiding, everyone became very fearful. The soldiers threatened to burn the village and kill everyone in it unless the young man was handed over to them before dawn. The people went to the minister and asked him what to do. And the minister, torn between handing over the man to the enemy and having his people killed, withdrew to his room and read his Bible, hoping to find an answer before dawn. After many hours in the early morning, his eyes fell on these words. It is better than one man dies than the whole people be lost. Then the minister closed the Bible, called the soldiers and told them where the fugitive was hidden. And after the soldiers led the young man away to be killed, there was a feast in the village because the minister had saved the lives of the people. But the minister did not celebrate. Overcome with deep sadness, he remained in his room. That night, an angel came to him and asked, What have you done? He said, I hand over the fugitive to the enemy. Then the angel said, But don't you know that you have handed over the Messiah? How could I know? The minister replied anxiously. And the angel said, If instead of reading your Bible, you had visited this young man just once and looked into his eyes, you would have known. So often our response uh, to kind of the situation that people are in is just to actually just think with our own biblical understanding. But I think more than ever in a time like this, our call as Christians is not just to only have a, a, a knowledge and an intellect about what we understand, but actually to look into the eyes of people and actually see people for who they are. See the beauty that is in every person. So, so often we've already made our minds up about a, about a certain type of person before we've even heard their story. And if you read through the Gospels, you, uh, last time I read through the Gospels, I, I was again gobsmacked at the way Jesus is constantly hanging out with people he shouldn't be. People it was taboo, dangerous, ungodly to hang out with in that day. But he didn't just hang out with these people. The thing is, uh, what I notice more and more when I read the Gospels is that Jesus actually sees these people. He stops for these people. He has time for these people. Every person is important and he truly listens. And so our response to how our society is being shaped in its desire for expressive individualism that is soaked in a commitment to self. Our society has become more and more lonely, more confused, more anxious, more alone. And so our response as Christians should be about how we see people. How we see people. And so this is the theme of what this response is about, about how we actually stop to see people and recognize 
that the image of God is in every single human. Every single human, there is dignity and worth that we are called to actually stop and recognize the beauty that is in every single person. And so the points that we're going to share from as we look at this and look at our response uh, is firstly, we need to see that we are articulators of our inner lives. Second, we're going to look at how we show compassion. Thirdly, is we bring power through weakness. So number one, we are articulators of our inner lives. In a world that is so consumed with self, people are more than ever trying to work out how to handle and deal with our inner life. Many don't know uh, that there's even something wrong with our inner life. They go uh, moving on to the next thing, next thing, consumed with and working and, and overworking, trying to please self, trying to get that satisfaction. We're trying to get to that next thing. But there are many that, that don't even recognize that they're so over-anxious, often irritable, and they're mostly dissatisfied. Our response as Christians is not to turn to people and say, ha ha, I told you so. This doesn't help you. That's not our response as Christians. Our response must be to actually learn what it means to articulate the inner groanings within us and to be able to speak that life into others. To actually be able to articulate our inner lives, the depth of what is going on. Because our life is so shallow, our culture and society, particularly in, in our comfortable Perth, it's so shallow. We, we don't want to go too deep into the deep things of, of life, but then we don't realise that we're actually so overworked. We don't have space and time to even know what's going on inside of us. And so if we can be people who can articulate what's really happening in the inner lives of who we are, that is a gift. That is beautiful, what our world really, truly needs. Not another person telling them off and telling them how wrong they are. They need people to actually be there for them, bringing hope and life. And I think this is truly what Jesus did. He is the master of it. The master of this. He had he, the ultimate spiritual discernment. In how he told parables, he confronted allegations, he confronted religious mindsets, he challenged his disciples, and he welcomed and loved the sinner. He did it in such a way as not to go, I told you so, but to truly get the deep parts of our inner life out in a beautiful, important way, an important message. Jesus would often do this. We must learn the art of articulating what's in our inner life. It must start with us. And so our response is not about how we can just change things in the church. Our response needs to start with us personally. If we want to actually see something change in our community and in the people around us, it needs to start with each of us. It doesn't just start with me as the pastor. It starts with each of us as Christians owning this. And actually going, no, I don't want to, to live a life where people are scared of Christians because of how we're going to treat them or how, what we might say to them. I want to actually be a person, a Christian, who invokes uh, beauty and life to others in the way that I live and the way that I speak. It needs to start personally in us. 
That's how we as the church are going to actually see change in societies. If we personally, and even if this small crew in our church here, if we start this, yeah, God can do something beautiful with that. And so, yes, there is much to learn in books. There's much to learn as we, we uh, even more we can learn as we talk with people and hear their stories. But I think there's an important step in the process that we need to be aware of as Christians and is that we actually need to process all this. The learning that we do, the, the, the reading that we do or, or watching um, or the stories that we hear, I think there's an important step of actually processing, journaling, contemplating what is going on in others so that we can actually learn how to articulate the very depths of our inner lives, the inner events that are important for others to hear. Henry Nouwen, he says that those who can articulate the movements of their inner lives, who can give names to their varied experiences, no longer need to be victims of themselves, but are able slowly and consistently to remove the obstacles that prevent the spirit from entering. They are able to create space for the spirit whose heart is greater than their own, whose eyes see more than their own, and whose hands can heal more than their own. We need to make space for the inner workings of God's spirit to actually be able to uh, remove those obstacles from prevent, that prevent the spirit of entering in by us actually learning to articulate with words what is really going on in us. That only comes as we give it space. It only comes if we actually are intentional about writing down what things mean to us. If we read something that, that triggers something, then write that response. Write what is it, those feelings and emotions that are going in through you. To actually journal that and think about what, what does that mean? Or why am I feeling this way? Why, why am I feeling a bit gross about this certain thing? Or why, why do I feel this life and joy when I'm hearing these words? And actually be able to articulate it. And bring it so that we can share that with others. And so if I was to ask you how you'd articulate what you thought on some big topics, how would you respond? You know, topics like LGBTQ and the, and the church, uh, topics of loneliness, anxiousness, gender preference, and more. If I was to ask you how would you be able to articulate your thoughts on such big topics, how could you respond? Now, the point is, is not for you to feel like you need to be a master at all these things, and to feel like you need to be overread and just know everything. That's not the point. Uh, maybe, you know, you feel drawn to one or two of these, these thoughts. You feel drawn to know more about maybe one of them. But the point is to actually be more aware of your own life, be more aware of the lives around you, and more aware of God's Spirit that is at work. When we give space to pay attention to what's going on around us, then we can actually start to learn how to articulate what is really happening. And when we just glaze over and quickly move on to the next thing, I know I've been caught up in a trap of just wanting to go to the next thing, to the next, and not stop to, to actually consider and think about what has got me to where I am and how have I got to thinking this way. 
It's so easy to get caught up in the rat race of life to not stop and consider what's really going on. And I think being aware of what's happening in our own lives is really key and can help us to actually articulate with others what can be happening. And again, I think that can be such a gift to our world where, where things are so shallow and so just easy to just kind of look to kind of the outer things that you can get. When we can be articulators of our inner lives, we can bring life to others. And so secondly, uh, we're called to show compassion. To show compassion. Now what would you say if a gay couple searching for God came into our church tonight? What would your first response be? What about a divorced person who's maybe living with a new partner unmarried? What would your response be? Would your response be to actually see the person or would you be thought and caught up with maybe the things that they've got wrong? the things that they haven't got right. Our first response and the response of Jesus is to show compassion. The response of Jesus is always to see the person first. When so often we've got caught up with the legalities of what we think someone should be doing and how they need to change first before we might actually let them do this A, B and C. No, our response is always first to see the person and see with compassion to actually identify the compassion that we are called to for one another. Henry Nouwen says that compassion is born when we discover in the centre of our own existence, not only that God is God and humans are human, but also that our neighbour really is our fellow human being. Thus, the authority of compassion is the possibility for each of us to forgive our brothers and sisters. Because forgiveness is only real for those who have discovered the weakness of their friends and the sins of their enemies in their own hearts and are willing to call each human being their sister and brother. We must see and realize that we, we, we all preach the gospel that we're all sinners. We preach that and know that we all are sinners, but sometimes we get caught up in, in kind of the, the, the uh, law and think that, that some areas of sin are more important to address right away. When we're actually called to actually love and see the person and believe for the person and, and welcome and show with compassion the love that Christ shows. And I'm, I'm so stuck by Jesus' words. I caught up with what he says in, in the parable in Matthew 25 when he's talking um, about this parable where he says that then the righteous will answer him, Lord, did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
I'm always caught up with Jesus' statements that to see one another as we would see Jesus in each other. That a response is, is to always show with dignity and worth the beauty that is in every single person. Our first response should never be about what someone needs to change. Our first response always needs to be compassion and love and worth. And as we journey with people, as we we actually see people and live with people and work through issues together, God works on them, but also God works on us. God's working. We don't have everything sorted and have this final big picture of how everything should work. No, God is doing a dance with all of us as we learn what it means to actually follow him together. And as I mentioned, uh, I've recently read this book, Changing Our Mind, by David Gushy. And though I I don't fully agree on his final point, um, I've become much more sympathetic towards that same-sex debate. Uh, And in the eighth chapter of his book, there is a hinge point. The first seven chapters were about identifying that we've come a long way as a society, uh, recognising that there are people either born or developed as same-sex attracted. Uh, It's kind of now we uh, have accepted that this is a part of what people's reality is. People's reality is that they, they actually have this inclination. We've moved past just thinking that their attraction is just made up or a figment of their imagination. Uh, And in this, we've recognised that to trivialise and make fun of their desires and their understandings of themselves is to do much damage. And it's not hard to to realise and see that we as the church have been a a big part of this damage. How we've trivialised and made fun of their desires, a, a very reality that they've had to live with and deal with and often these people, they, they, they don't want this. One story I heard is about how someone was in church and they realised that they had these same-sex desires uh, and they thought it would be better to die and be with Jesus than to face the scrutiny of judgment and judgmental church. That this is the very reality that many people have to go through is not only do they have to fight and wrestle with these desires in them, but then they have to bring that and realize that this culture is against them. And we as the church are actually meant to be for these people and love them and see them and and embrace them. But instead, we just choose to to see the negative and say, no, no, what are you going to change? How are you going to act? But if we were to do that with another person, then we wouldn't get anywhere with them. Just as we do with with, uh, the people of same sex. If we just go down this line, what are you going to change now? But we actually need to stop and show compassion and love first, that we're here for them. And in, in this book, there's kind of a list. So this hinge point in chapter 8, and it then finishes the book, uh, the following chapters of unpacking some, some of his biblical understanding of the debate. Uh, but in this chapter 7, there's a list of, of what we can do, a conversation about uh, LGBTQ community and how we can act, whether you believe, whether you have a um, traditional view or whether you have a progressive understanding of um, the same-sex debate. This list um, can meet us whether you're, you're on either side of the spectrum. Uh, and so we're going to read this. It's in your booklets as well. Uh, about what we can do now, how we can act in such a time 
uh, in this kind of uh, conversation and how we can talk about it. And so there are these seven things that we can do and actually act in as part of um, seeing, yeah, something happening in this conversation. Number one is to read narratives of the LGBTQ people, as well as reputable work in contemporary psychology to inform your interactions with this population and the ways you speak privately and publicly about these issues. And there are many great books, many people who have shared their stories. I can recommend a, a number of books that, uh, of people who have shared their stories of this um, and have come to different conclusions. Uh, and yeah, it's good to even read uh, some different sides of the story. Uh, number two is to be aware that in any room with 20 or more people, the likelihood is that at least one is LGBTQ in orientation or identity. And add to this the friends and family members and others who fiercely love LGBTQ people. So anytime you or I make any statement about the gays or those people, we are likely speaking about people who are in the room with us. Speak with consequent care. People get their backs up when their loved ones are spoken of carelessly or contemptuously. Number three is to make a commitment never to accept derogatory speech or any form of bullying or mistreatment of the LGBTQ people in your presence. No more would you allow the people to use the N-word in your presence if you are a parent or a youth worker never allows your kids to throw around terms like gay or queer as slurs. Number four is help parents respond in constructive ways when their children come out as gay or lesbian or express questions about their sexuality. Make your church a context where parents know that the right response to their teenagers is never to reject them as human beings, never to throw them out. Did you know that there are parents who tell their gay kids they wish those kids had never been born? Parents who refuse to acknowledge the existence of a child once he comes out as gay. Please never, ever again, and if you know a teenager or a young adult has been rejected by their family because they are gay or lesbian, offer that child Christian love and hospitality. Number five is get to know gay Christians or ex-Christians if you get a chance. Listen to their stories with a teachable spirit. Number six, become an advocate for the welcome of LGBTQ Christians in your congregation to the maximal point theological possible theologically possible in your setting. Number seven, even if you oppose civil gay marriage, consider public policy steps you can support. Perhaps you can get behind anti-bullying curriculum in schools or laws that classify physical attacks on gays as hate crime. This sets a good example for others and helps observers see that being Christian does not equal being anti-gay. Now, some of that you uh, may disagree or agree with some of those things, um, or you may agree with it all. And uh, that's, I, I tend to think that that's a, that's a pretty uh, comprehensive good list of something that we can actually do um, in what it means to be a part of this conversation. Uh, and I'm not going to give you what I believe right now about my theological understanding of same-sex. Sorry, if that was what you're here for. <laughs> mostly because I think that deserves an hour in itself. <laughs> uh, and I can recommend some things if anyone wants to ask me. Um, there's, a, there's a John Tyson podca uh, podcast that does it pretty well. I think there's a couple of things that he says that I still don't, I don't know if I agree with, but very min 
minor things in that podcast, but mostly I think that's the most comprehensive view of what I would believe. Um, and he does a very good job of unpacking the whole spectrum. Uh, so if you want to listen to something, John Tyson's A Controversial Jesus um, on the Gay Christian is very, very good unpacking the full kind of view of the whole matter. Uh, but I think it is like an hour podcast or something for a preach. Um, so that's it, it requires that though. This kind of, this conversation isn't just something that you can just quickly have, because a lot of us come with these different ideas and different understandings, and um, we need to be aware of that and not uh, take that lightly. Um, and so whether you think you're more progressive in your view of same-sex or whether you're more conservative, I don't think... Uh, the reason why I'm not going into that either is I, can, I don't think that's the point of what I'm trying to get. The point is not whether you're a pro progressive or conservative. I think either way, we need to actually work together. And we all, doesn't matter what our views are, can show compassion and love. It doesn't matter how we're concluded. We all need to see people with the dignity that Christ calls us to see them with. And so I, I think it's actually healthy that we may have different people with different views. And that's okay. We should learn what it means to agree and disagree. And um, that is an important part of what we can bring together. And so this kind of leads to point number three, which is to we bring power through weakness. Great Timothy Keller quote is, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Love it. <laughs> Love it. That when we think we've just nailed it and know everything there is, we actually might be worshipping an idealised version of ourselves. That we all need to be teachable and mouldable in this and never think that we have the full picture and understanding because we are not God. <laughs> just letting you know. <laughs> and so we all need to come from a place of realising that we don't have the full picture and realise that our power is actually in weakness. This is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is power through weakness. And so if we even take a look and look at, uh, there are three ways that we can use power. Number one, the first way is the imperial self, which uses force or violence for power. Uh, and this is kind of when, it, when it's taken out of control, it's this toxic leader culture. It's this kind of this thing that, that, that everyone is, is um, uh, alert to at the moment, this toxic leader who's abusing the power. It's still happening, unfortunately, in a lot of our cultures today. It still happens so often, an abuse of power by this imperial self, um, often by white, white males who think that they can uh, overcome people by their, their place in life uh, and a sad story. Um, that's one use of power. Second use is an impartial, passive self, which uses passive aggression for power. Uh, and this is, this is also probably actually much used, probably particularly in, here in Perth. Um, we are probably more averse to that confrontational, overpowering, salesman-type person. Uh, we're, you know, more chilled and laid back and don't get too aggressive with me, mate. Um, 
but we would probably use a lot more of passive aggression to get what we want. Uh, and this extreme view is the cliche teenager who is asleep on the, on the back row, passive-aggressive right there. That's a passive-aggressive move. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> instead of having a conversation, um, they have a tantrum and close their door, slam their door and give you the silent treatment. Uh, this is a way of putting people in your control by making them feel bad. And the teenager is the cliche extreme version, but we do this in lots of little aversions. Um, and uh, instead of actually having the conversation, we just avoid it uh, and are passive about it, not actually address what's really going on. But the way that we're called to is the weak self. The Christian way is to get power through weakness. And this is different to passive. Because our reference point is not about gaining control over people, but it's about giving it up. Our reference point is that we want to give up control and not actually think that we understand everything, but actually want to lay down our lives for others, to become wounded ministers for the message of Christ, that we give our lives, we only gain our lives if we give it, if we pick up our cross, the very symbol of death, we pick that up and follow Christ by laying down who we are and be through weakness, through serving. This is the way Christ demonstrated power, <clears throat> by giving his life, by serving and not lording it over to others. But he sees them, listens to people and acknowledges them. This is a kind of power that we are talking about before in our inner self, that we actually are so consumed with helping others that we bring benefit and life to others, that there is a change in heart for others because they see in us not an abuse of power, not trying to gain control over them, but they see in us us giving over that control and just presenting the beauty of who Christ is for others. And this is how we should be having conversations with one another that we agree or disagree with. Maybe asking someone yeah, actually having these conversations and actually giving you yeah, this, this power control over. And so you may have, it might be good to actually ask someone you trust what their views are of certain things and not squash them or even maybe do that as an opportunity to tell them how much you've read recently or how much you know about this, the topic. Those conversations are important to have to actually just listen and to hear them and respond and ask more questions, to learn more about what others are thinking. And often, I mean, we probably usually become a bit squirmish ourselves and, ah, do I have to present something fully? But if you do this with a trusted person from a, a place of just respect and honour, we don't want to just have debates about what, who knows more and who's better, but we actually just want to have a, a healthy conversations of listening. And I think listening is a form of, of that healthy weakness, of not speaking too much is that form of healthy weakness. And maybe not speaking enough is, is the opposite for you, depending on your personality. Maybe you don't speak at all, and so maybe you need to speak more. 
But I think that conversation is so important and so key. And when we come from this point of view, when we come from that weak place, uh, it's because we're truly secure as Christ as King. Truly secure as Christ as King. Again, that, that quote from Timothy Keller, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. And so too often, I've noticed in myself, I can get fearful or anxious when someone brings something up that I, I don't agree with. And that's often an example of me uh, realising that maybe Christ isn't fully king. If I have to worry about this and get anxious about it, do I truly trust that Jesus is king? Do I truly trust that he is in control? Can I truly believe that he, he carries this? I don't have to carry all the things that are going on. And yes, we can, in a healthy way, uh, present what we believe and share what we think. I don't think you should just be silent and passive. That's a passive view. But I think we can do it in a healthy way of having a conversation, but coming from the place of, of crisis king, not a fearful, anxious place where we're trying to use a form of power, lording it over people or, or through a passive-aggressive view, but actually through listening and caring and having compassion on one another. I think it'd be great to continue to have these conversations where we agree and disagree all in the same place. But I think that the way that we can really do that as well is from an articulation of our inner selves. It's from a place of compassion, from a place, a power of weakness. And so the Old Testament prophets were often people... Uh, who stood in their time declaring the word of the Lord that was opposing what the people of Israel were doing, opposing their corrupt ways. But the thing about the Old Testament prophets is that they stood humbly before God so they could stand boldly before the world. They first stood humbly before God so that they could stand boldly before the world. And again, I finished this section as I did the same as the first. More than ever, we need to be deeply grounded and rooted in the secret place of God. The only way that we're going to be able to be this people of deep articulation of the inner life, of people of compassion, is if we're rooted in the secret place with God and our identity is truly formed in him. So that is, that's what we need to keep committing to, keep fighting for in our lives. Despite how busy we get, there's nothing more important than being found in the secret place with God and being established in the way that he's calling us to be. Good. Good. <laughs> Uh, so it's 6.48, which means we're 18 minutes over right now. <laughs> Pat's going to have a, a time. You know, she's not going to be happy about it. Um, so I'm going to pray. We did have some discussion questions, but 
maybe we can have that. Just some light discussion questions over the snacks. <laughs> uh, let me pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that all that we're doing, Lord, the pursuit of how we can love others, how we can share the good news of Jesus is much more than just what we can speak about here and now, but it's, God, you're doing a work in each of us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show and reveal to us the inner parts of who we are, what you have led us through, how you have formed us and given us what we are and who we are, Lord. And I pray, I thank you that um, who we are is a gift to others. Lord, may you help us, strengthen us to articulate that gift to others in a way that brings life and hope. God, help us to show with compassion the love of Jesus that is for all. To not think that because of pride or fear we need to control people or, or have a certain stigma or, or, or um, view of people. But Lord, help us through compassion to love people and see the individual as you see them, Jesus. Help us to be the very people that will impact this society around us. Not to be held down by whatever society thinks it can hold down. But God, we can see with faith and life, the hope that you call us into. Jesus, I thank you that you are the, the way, the truth, and the life. That true life is found in you, Jesus. And that God, as we, we lean into you, finds our secret place in you. May you strengthen us. May you help us. Thank you that you are with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.